Let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Some of the best moments in life are shared experiences. Those moments that we can look back on with family or friends and say, you remember that Christmas when whatever it was happened? Or that time we went on that trip and we were all so annoyed because the flight was delayed? Except Grandpa. Grandpa did what he always does. He just took a nap. (laughs) Human beings are hardwired for relationships, for community. We love these memories because they are something we share with other people. They have a a unifying effect on us, making a diverse and perhaps even conflicting people into one. There's two moments like this that came to mind for me when I was preparing this sermon, and interestingly enough, they both have to do with the American Embassy in Ottawa. The first was in February 2002. I was in university at the time in Ottawa, and my friends and I gathered together with seemingly the rest of the entire country to watch as the Canadian men's Olympic team won the gold medal for the first time in 50 years, defeating the American men's team. As the final horn went, Countless people streamed out of their homes or the pubs or wherever it was they were watching and into the streets. Everyone was cheering and celebrating and hugging one another. Yes, even me, (laughs) hugging complete strangers. It's not an invitation. (laughs) And we decided since, well, we beat the Americans... We ought to walk down to their embassy and let them know all about it. (laughs) And when we arrived, apparently we were not the only ones with this idea. There was already a crowd there. At the gate of the American embassy, this large group of very excited Canadians sang a rousing version of O Canada to the American embassy. As one people. It was a great moment. There was no fights over our differences or concerns about really anything at all, including apparently public disturbances, just joy. The other experience happened a few months before that hockey game at the very same gate, under very different circumstances. It was a vigil a couple of nights after September 11th, 2001. This time, a crowd didn't gather to gloat or to celebrate, but to cry together, to stand with our wounded American brothers and sisters and look for some kind of comfort. Both of these moments have stuck with me in large part because they were shared experiences. My friends and I still talk about that time when 
we stood in solidarity and sang the Star-Spangled Banner at the embassy. They're moments that made a wildly divergent and often conflicting people into one. These past few weeks, we've been walking the road ahead, looking at our mission, our vision, and our values. This week, we're going to talk about our final value, a people together. That is what Christians are called to be, a people together. And so together, we're going to turn to our reading from the book of Hebrews. There, we will find the ground of our unity, the moment that made a diverse people into one, and why living without community deprives ourselves of a genuine gift of God. So let's begin by turning to Hebrews 10 and looking at our ground of unity. Our passage today begins with, therefore, brothers. Many of us know the old saying that when you see therefore in scripture, you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? In this case, the author of Hebrews has been arguing that because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, the old sacrificial system with the Day of Atonement and the high priest going into the most holy place is no longer necessary. Jesus Christ is the once for all perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world. He follows that argument with a series of imperatives or commands showing that our life together starts with and is grounded upon Jesus, specifically his sacrificial work for us on the cross and his resurrection. We find the first imperative in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That draw near there means drawing near to God, boldly approaching the throne of grace as the author laid out for us in chapter 4. Verses 19 through 21 set the stage for that imperative. He writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Let's pause there for a second. The author is telling us that because of what Jesus has done, we have a new way of coming to God. Previously, it was only the high priest who could come into the presence of God, and that only on a very specific day. But now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we all can draw near to God. In fact, we are all intended to. We are to come into the presence of God with assurance of faith because Christ has died for us and cleansed us of all our sins. Every single one of us can have a relationship with God the Father through his Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not the right of a select few, but the gift offered to all. And it is all because of Jesus. Jesus, then, is the ground of our personal salvation, but he is also the ground of our unity. Jesus died for me, yes, but he didn't die for me only. 
but for you as well. We are a people with the same need, forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God the Father. And we are a people who are offered the same and only solution, faith in Christ. The cross is the place where all of us can come together to see our sin paid for and how the path to reconciliation has been made and been opened for each of us. Knowing what Christ then has done for each of us, we can be united in the common cause of praising him for his work and proclaiming him so that others who don't know him might. The cross and the resurrection are the moment where a divided people begin to be made one. Jesus is the grand of our unity and the bond of our life together. But why does community matter? Why is it important? Well, in truth, I think evangelical Christians, which I consider myself and this church to be, are quite good at talking about the cross and resurrection of Jesus for what they have done for me, for what they have done for individuals. But where we evangelicals tend to drop the ball a bit is when we talk about, or don't talk about, how the work of Christ impacts us corporately. See, in the Western world, we've made an, an idol of individuality. We've elevated individualism to be the highest good, and the church is far more influenced by the culture around us than we care to admit or to recognize. And the way that we have taken on this hyper-individualism is to so personalize the work of Jesus that the body of Christ, the church, has become just a nice little addition to my own spiritual life. And it's actually kind of sad. There's an Easter where I was walking home after the service, and uh, in the small town I was living in, there was a, a woman standing on the street handing out tracts to people as they walked by. The, the little booklets that you know, describe the path to salvation, or they might have the five spiritual laws. Uh, hopefully you all know what I'm talking about there. So she's handing them out to people, and as I'm walking up, there's no one else around, and so I stopped and chatted with her for a bit. And eventually I asked, so what church do you go to? Maybe I know it. And she said to me, oh, I I don't go to church. I don't need a church. I have Jesus in my heart and my Bible in my hand. It broke my heart to hear that. It was a sad thing to hear. Because she was depriving herself of the gift of the church, the gift of being with other believers. And make no mistake, friends, the church, for all her warts, and she's got many, is a gift. That woman was a living example to me of an attitude that has wormed its way into the hearts and minds of too many believers, even those who go to church. That we've relegated community to a secondary thing. Instead of seeing it as the gift and frankly the necessity that it is. See, what we have done is celebrated the truths of verses 19 and 20 and then jumped right to verse 22. Here's what verse 21 says. 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God. The author here is talking about the household of God, the gathered people of God, the church with a capital C. See, in the ancient world, when people spoke about houses or households, what they had in mind was the extended family, okay? Mom, dad, kids, grandkids, grandparents, cousins, everybody. And so when that word, that same word, household, is applied to God's household, they are talking about all of us, the wider body. Since Christ has come and lived and died and rose for us, yes, we as individuals can have relationship with God, but we are also called to draw near as a community. To come into the presence of God together. That is what we do every single time we gather for worship. Every single Sunday. Every time we gather together for Bible study, for prayer. We are coming together into the presence of God. It's what we're called to do. We tend to forget the communal because of the emphasis we place on the individual. But these are not meant to be competing factions. It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. As we spoke about last week, Christ calls us as individuals to be a part of something greater than ourselves. Yet in that calling, he doesn't override our individuality, but shows us how we have been equipped and called to love and serve the community. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is the moment that has impacted us all As individuals, yes, it is the moment that has planted itself or should have planted itself into the hearts and minds of the people of God, just as those stories that I shared earlier did for me. For Christians, the crucifixion and resurrection are our shared experience, our shared moments that unite us. The moment where we can look at one another and say, you remember that Christ did that for me? Well, he did that for you too. And he even did that for that person over there. And that person over there that I've never spoken to. Or the stranger that I walked by. It is absolutely true. We need to have Jesus in our hearts and the Bible in our hand. But the life that Jesus calls us to is meant to be experienced together as a household, as a family. That is what we are. If we believe in Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are meant to live this life together. And the imperatives that the author lays out in this chapter, when we are together, they become a whole lot easier to live out. And they become more fulfilling. And it's in the walking together that we really actually get somewhere. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who who promised is faithful. The confession of our hope here is, of course, the tenets of our faith. The stuff that Christians believe. Now, That's a really hard thing to hold on to if you're trying to do it by yourself. I don't know about the rest of you, but... I'm not always great at correcting myself. 
I need fellow believers speaking truth into my life to correct me where I'm not living out what I claim to believe. Seminary is part of something called a covenant group. It's a group where a bunch of guys got together and we'd talk about what was going on in our lives and we'd read the Bible together and pray together. They are incredibly beneficial groups. Highly recommend them to everyone. There was another uh, guy at the school that was not a part of our group that I, I really didn't get along with. Neither one of us liked each other very much. I didn't even like being in the same room as him. Yes, that happens even at seminary. One of the guys in our group knew that, and he said to me, you need to pray for him, because your heart isn't right about this. He called me out of my stuff, and he was right. He was right to do it. And he did it because he knew me and he loved me. He didn't call me out to try to poke at me, but to help me. That is a key distinction. I may have eventually gotten there on my own. Maybe the Holy Spirit would have prompted me enough that I would finally submit. But rather than that, the Holy Spirit used my friend to say something I couldn't say to myself even though I knew it was true. The Holy Spirit used my friend to prompt me to pray, and that changed my heart. My relationship with that individual was completely transformed. That is the power of God, and that is the power of community. It is in community that we can say, you know, Paul tells us to speak the truth in love, and you might be speaking truth, but it ain't in love. Or to remind us of what Christ has done for each of us when we are feeling the weight of guilt or shame. But for that to happen, for genuine community to happen, it means opening up ourselves to one another. And I wouldn't have gotten that prompting from my friend unless he knew me and where my heart was. But opening up is not the easiest thing for us, is it? Many of us are afraid that if we open up, people might figure out we're not actually perfect. Maybe we've got a bit of a story. But here's where verse 23 is a gift to us. Because it tells us that we are to hold on, hold fast to our confession. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Do not let go of that verse. He who promised is faithful. It is in the community of believers in genuine relationship with one another that God often speaks that truth directly into our hearts. Think how powerful it is when a friend sits with you and says, I know you've got a history. Guess what? So do I. That sin that you've committed, I committed it too. You know what? I've struggled with addiction. I've struggled with depression. I've been unemployed and unsure about the future. But I also know that Hebrews 10 tells me that I can come to God because Jesus is faithful. And because of Jesus, I get to draw near to a father who loves me and forgives me and is willing to heal me and renew me. That I might not always be faithful to him, but he is always faithful to me. And to top it all off, he's given me a community to help me remember those very things. The church is crucial. She is crucial because she reminds us of the ground of our unity, the bond of our life together, and that we don't 
and shouldn't live this life alone. Last thing for today. Jesus is the ground of our unity, and the community of the faithful is of the utmost importance for our walk with Christ. For all of this to make the most impact, though, we have to meet together consistently. It's a big word here, consistently. Look at verses 24 and 25. We read this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That phrase in the middle jumps out at me like a sore thumb. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Since her foundation, there have been those who see the church as optional, something to get to when I can, something that is great when it's convenient. That's not what the church is intended to be. And that means the church is not just something we do on Sundays. The church is meant to gather together regularly, consistently, so that we can encourage one another, so that we can wrap our arms around those who are wounded or the one who is staying away because they don't want to admit they actually waver in their faith sometimes that they doubt the promises of Jesus, or they believe that they don't belong because there's some sin in their life that they just can't forgive themselves for, even though Jesus has forgiven them. Or to help heal those that see the church as a bunch of hypocrites who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. It is in the coming together that we find the solutions to those challenges. It is in coming together that we spur one another on to love and charity and good works, to forgive those who have wronged us and to show us when we have wronged another, to help us to seek forgiveness and to give it. It is in the consistent gathering together as the body of Christ that we hear again of how Jesus died for us and that through his death and resurrection, we divergent people have been knit together as one body and called to live as God's household. In my short time here, I've gotten to know many of you. Many of you have shared something with me that has broken my heart. On more than one occasion, I have heard something like this. I've been coming here for a long time, but I don't really know anyone. It's a sad thing to hear, isn't it? It's also an opportunity. You can't fix something if you don't know it's broken. And until you know something's wrong, you're not going to work on it, are you? And so as I lay out in my rector's report, in the annual report, which you all see after the service, over the next year, I am going to be spending a great deal of my time focusing on ways that we can foster greater community at our church, looking at ways that we can be closer knit to one another what we can do to grow as a community of Jesus, genuinely loving and supporting one another, how we could begin a small group ministry and encourage one another to gather at wider events where we all come together to spend time together and celebrate. I'd love for you to join me in that work. 
that's something the Lord has placed on your heart, come and talk to me. We can start by asking, which category do I tend to fall into? The stirring up to love and good works category or the meeting infrequently one? If I'm in the second group, how might I join that first one? What is it that holds me back? Is it guilt and shame from a past sin? Is it the wounding that I've experienced at the hand of Christians? Do I need to hear the truth of the gospel again? Have I never actually submitted myself to Christ? Don't assume that just because a person's in a church that they've done that, folks. If I'm in the first group, how might might I invite others into a closer walk together? Is there someone that the Lord has put on my heart to reach out to, even if they're not currently at St. Aidan's? Perhaps especially if they're not. Recently, I've begun to pray about this issue and the need for greater community at our church. And I've asked personally and specifically that the Lord would place people in my life, particularly men, that I can disciple in one-to-one relationships. It's something I have a passion for. I love doing it. And something that men tend to not be very good at doing. It's often how these things start, by asking the Lord to place people in our lives that we can have genuine community with. Are we willing to do that at least? To pray that the Lord would knit us together, would start this ministry? I know many of you long for this very thing. You've spoken to me about it. And it is my prayer and my burden that we live out this Hebrews 10.24 calling not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but spurring one another on to love and good works, inviting the lonely and the isolated in to experience what it is like to be in a genuine community that loves one another and that lives this Christian life together. Knows what it is to be one. For that is who we are called to be at St. Aidan's, a people together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do call us, us individual, very different, unique people into a body, into a community. Help us, Father, to live this life together, to support one another, to love one another, to not be afraid to open up to one another. We pray, Lord, that by your will, you would grow this ministry And that you would remind us again of what it is to be a people that seeks Jesus together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.